Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for joining us today. This is going to be a contentious episode and I'm super stoked for it. it is it going to be contentious? Because you already, you already won the argument and got <laughs> your way, so... That we're even doing this episode at all has, has ended the argument and, and you've won. Yes. <laughs> we're doing something a little different this episode. Not really, like, different in terms of what we're doing. Uh, just in <laughs> terms of the, the film we're looking at is a little bit different from uh, our typical... Horror movie? Yeah, in that it's not a <laughs> horror movie at all. Uh, at least not in my opinion. It's, it's horror adjacent. Um, but, but it's, <sighs> you know, it's not actually a horror movie. Uh, we are watching Hexen, the 1922 Swedish documentary about witches and witchcraft by Danish director Benjamin Christensen. And uh, this, this movie gets put on like lists of silent horror movies a lot. That's certainly why I first ran into it. Mm-hmm. But then you watch it and it's, it's, it's nonfiction. It's, it's a documentary about yeah. medieval witches. Like it's something that if they had like the History Channel in 1922, it would it would be on the History Channel. But yeah, just uh... just owing to the fact that this movie's not not a horror film, which <laughs> I will get into a lot later. Um, this is why I, I said it would be contentious. I was I was somewhat unsure about covering this film on the show because I mean, yes, it's about witches, but you know, like. A, a br- Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time has black holes in it. That doesn't make it science fiction. But you you really wanted to do oh, it. I really did. Uh, I felt it was really important to watch this movie for a variety of reasons. Hexen is included on all of these horror movie lists, um, especially for like silent film. Um, and so I think that warrants its inclusion just on a very superficial level. If everyone is saying that's a horror movie, then I think it's worth exploring why they think that. Hexen is boundary-pushing in so many respects, um, including the reason why you disagree that it's a horror movie, because it's really a documentary rather than a fictional film. I think it's often considered a horror movie because of the dramatized sequences. Mm-hmm, um, yes. The grotesque imagery and content in particular, if you just saw that without context of the rest of the film, you would assume that this is a horror movie. Devils going around and all of that kind of imagery links this to the horror genre. To kind of go back to our definition of a horror movie, it has to have a fear of something. Its primary goal should be to instill the emotion of fear in the audience. Yeah, when we look at horror movies, we think about what is it saying that we should be afraid of? And the other thing we keep going back to is that it has survivors rather than heroes. Uh, These survivors make it through something that's an unrelenting force, and that's often the source of the fear. Heroes overcome that source. The reason why Hexen is debatable is because, yeah, it depicts a fear of the supernatural, a fear of the superstition, hysteria, misinformation, but then it also debunks. Mm -hmm. 
as a documentary, it tries to explain how we don't need to be afraid, and, and that these are real, graspable problems. They aren't just an unrelenting force. Uh, I thought a really good way to explain kind of what I mean here is to compare it to The Phantom Carriage. Okay. Which is currently sitting at number one. Yes. So The Phantom Carriage is horror because of the horror of poverty, and the reason it took the number one spot is because that horror of poverty is very real. What I really like about Phantom Carriage is it took a supernatural force to allow our survivors to get through that unrelenting problem. Mm-hmm. Hexen is a documentary because of the, the reveal behind the curtain. But I think just because it reveals that curtain, its place in history is like this boundary-pushing film. Hexen is still a development of the horror genre. We've seen nothing... Like, we've seen this movie before... The movies that we've watched up to this point look nothing like this. Mm-hmm. I think the closest would maybe be Nosferatu because of like some of the grotesque stuff. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, this movie, there's nothing else like it. And it's true that part of the reason why there's nothing else like it is because of that documentary aspect. But it's it springs from that same horror genre. And so that, to me, means it warrants us watching it. I do agree, though, that it's more documentary than a horror film, and this is where we compromised, that we will not be ranking it against the others. But I think it still warrants inclusion on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree that Hexen is a, a really worthwhile movie for people to see. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly a movie that was revolutionary and innovative in a lot of ways when it came out and has a lot of really amazing and striking imagery. I still, you know, would not agree on a strict definition of horror in calling it a horror film, simply due to the fact that, for me anyways, a lot of what fear is comes from not knowing or not understanding. And once you've been educated, you know, and <laughs> you're no longer... Which is the whole point of this thing. Which is the whole point of the film, is that once you're educated and understand what's going on, you don't have to be afraid anymore. So this movie's an antidote to fear. It's like an anti-horror movie. Yeah. Um... But you make such a compelling point about the reasons why this movie gets lumped in with the other horror movies of its time. And also, just on the basis of perhaps its influence on later works, Mm -hmm. the value of discussing it on the show, even if it perhaps does not meet our strict definitions of the genre. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting to think about how young this genre is like this is like what 30 years that like well we're in 1922 and film itself has only been around since 1895 at this point i mean you're looking at a medium that's 30 years old okay and then you know if we're talking about the horror genre one of the things i think we've established pretty clearly on this podcast is perhaps just how hard it is to pin down oh this is the first yeah and i think with hexen It's really interesting to see a movie that addresses horror while also indulging in what makes us watch horror, Mm -hmm. right? To be scared and to to see sensational things and be thrilled by it. And then to have the film pause and be like, hey, here's here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's really great. I think that's why I really like this film. If you're listening to the podcast and you're like, what? It's not a horror movie? I'm not going to watch it. No, 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 no. Please do watch it uh, and 
Uh, we'd love to hear what you think and if you agree or disagree whether this uh, should be considered a horror film or not. You know, we've we've talked on a lot of the episodes of the podcast about, you know, the evolution of the genre mm. and what defines the genre and where the genre is in being defined and how it's evolved. I think, you know, by this early point, those genre conventions are starting to come into place. We're starting to figure things out. But another thing that's really important to contextualize what this movie is and where it's coming from is to talk about what was a documentary in 1922. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a completely new and different (laughs) tangent. Definitely. So if you'll indulge me... (laughs) Of course. uh, We're going to go down a tangent into a brief history (laughs) of the documentary film. Something we talked about very briefly in our very first episode was about the earliest films. And the earliest films were called actualities. Mm. They were based around the novelty of just recording an event or scene occurring. Mm-hmm. So they were nonfiction. As fiction films evolved and got more complex and more sophisticated, so did nonfiction. Early on, uh, they were often still in the simple mode of recording processes for instructional or educational purposes. A lot of early nonfiction films are things like how to do surgery, how to put this thing together. Would these be for the general public or these for would, training purposes? Yeah, these would be occupational films or educational films, academic films. Mm. Soon, you know, by the late 1910s, uh, various varieties of nonfiction film had appeared. You had travelogues, uh, mm. which took us to far-off exotic places. You had picturesques, which were really just like pretty scenes of, you know, nature or cities or what have you. Uh, industrial films, educational films, promotional films, and, of course, newsreels. Mm-hmm. As these non-fictional films grew in complexity alongside their fictional counterparts, the genre of film that we call documentary sort of began to slowly, amorphously emerge, like we've been seeing the horror genre do. It's sort of, you know, you can look at early versions and go, that's not quite it, but that's close enough. It is worth saying that the word documentary will not be coined until 1926. Uh, when it was first used by Scottish film critic John Grierson's appraisal of filmmaker Robert Flaherty's salvage ethnography films. Flaherty's 1922 film, The Nook of the North, which was shot Mm -hmm. in the Canadian Arctic, that has traditionally held the title of earliest documentary film. Grierson, who introduced this phrase, documentary, to describe Flaherty's work, would later go on to found the National Film Board of Canada. Neat. Yeah. That's really cool. At this early time, it was common for nonfiction films to stage or reenact events. It wasn't important that the events really happened in front of the camera. What mattered was depicting nonfiction topics through the medium of film. So, for example, while early documentaries like In the Land of the Headhunters, Nanook of the North, and Moana staged an anachronistic portrayal of the indigenous cultures which were their subject, the films nevertheless preserve a a visual record of practices that were under threat being carried out by people within living memory of the heyday of those practices. So, you know, in these Robert Flaherty films, he frequently would show indigenous peoples 
living not as they did in the 20s, but more like as they would have, say, pre-exposure to Western civilization. And he was criticized for kind of staging these things and presenting a picture of these people as being more primitive and backwards than they really were. And that's fair, but it also means that we have on film depictions of these practices that were being wiped out. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if we broaden our understanding of the nonfiction film form of documentary to include reenactments of events and practices by actors on sets as a valid form of importing nonfiction information in the visual medium of film, it is clear that Hexen is a documentary. Yeah. It's, it's almost something close to being a visual essay. It has a thesis that it's searching to prove. It has sources. Um, one of my favorite bits of trivia about this film was that at the original theatrical screenings, a bibliography was handed out as part of the program. Yeah. And it has this informational structure that's broken down into four distinct parts. Hexen was released in September of 1922, later the same year as Nanook of the North. While Robert Flaherty was innovating the documentary form in the Canadian Arctic, Danish actor-turned-director Benjamin Christensen was doing the same in Sweden. Uh, so you had these two guys kind of inventing this film form independently of each other in different countries. Christensen was born in 1879, and he started acting on stage in 1901, moving to film in 1911, and then assuming control of the production company that he worked for in 1913. In 1914, his debut film was released, Die Hemlihelsville X, uh, and this film was highly praised at the time for its revolutionary cinematic techniques uh, in camera work, editing, art direction. It was considered to be like an amazing directorial debut. Uh, however, after his second film, Christensen grew disillusioned with the Danish film industry and dropped out of sight for a while. What had happened was, while in Berlin at a used bookstore, he found a copy of the Malleus Maleficarum, and he then spent the next three years studying witches and witchcraft with the intent of creating an entirely new type of film apart from the approved genre of literary adaptations that mm. was in vogue at the time. He said that he was struggling to try and find a way for film to move past adaptations and to something new and original. Uh, ironically, he's still using a literary basis, though, which is the Malleus Maleficarum. I feel like... He's using it as a basis for his argument, mm -hmm. not for his film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like an adaptation. Mm -hmm. Do you think he would have seen Eerie Tales? Because that's a German film set in a used bookstore with <laughs> <laughs> adaptations of things. Yeah, if I could just speak to the Malleus Maleficarum real quick. Uh, yeah, go ahead. The Malleus Maleficarum was first published in 1487, and it's commonly translated as Hammer of Witches. It's a legal and theological explanation for the extermination of witches. Here's how to hunt witches kind of handbook. Mm -hmm. Are they women? Yes. Cool. Hunt them down. Exactly. Yeah, it was used to target Jews, Romani, uh, women, uh, particularly women in power positions, so uh, women who had been educated, women who were midwives and knew things about childbirth and medicine, queer men, those who were mentally ill, poor, old, Basically, if you weren't a cis, white-presenting man who was a Christian, who was a Catholic, you, you better be afraid. 
These people were targeted under the guise of practicing sorcery, that is, anything deemed heresy and against theological law. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, if you were doing quote-unquote magic and you were doing it within the understand the theological understanding of the Catholic Church, you know, you're a priest and it's okay. Yeah. Uh, if you were able to work any kind of miracles, quote-unquote, and, and, and magic, and you weren't a priest, then you clearly have made a deal with Satan for this power. Because if you had made a deal with God, you would be a priest. Therefore, you must be evil. And while there's no record as to how many were killed as part of this these witch hunts, between the 13th and 18th centuries, it's estimated up to 4 million were killed. Most historians kind of see the Malleus Maleficarum as coming as having a context as coming out of the aftermath of the Black Death, mm. the, the second bubonic plague pandemic, in that, you know, in looking for an explanation for why so many people were dying, the only explanation that the sort of established social order at the time could kind of come up with was, y'all must be witches and God's real angry at you. So yeah. if we get rid of the witches, people be stopped dying. I mean, there's that theory, and then there's the theory we talked about last week with vampires. Mm. Kill the vampire, stop the sickness. Yeah. yeah. This is a similar kind of, of religious scapegoating. Yeah, only targeting alive people. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you get them before they die, they won't become vampires, Sarah. <sighs> Boy. <laughs> so, with that brief overview, hopefully you kind of see how the Malleus Maleficarum is as much a piece of misogyny as it is of zealous theology. And I really appreciate how Hexen clearly demonstrates that and makes the argument for it. Mm -hmm. Christensen chose to work... He was Danish, but when it mm. came time to make the film, he chose to work in Sweden with our old friends uh, Svensk Film Industry in order to obtain the needed funds to make the film, but also so that he could maintain artistic creative control working under a nationalized film industry. He used the funds that he got from the Swedish film industry to buy a soundstage uh, <laughs> that he would then use exclusively to film the movie, which was shot between February and October of 1921. So they shot for almost a whole year. And let's think back to the fact that like, the follow-up to the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was released later that same year. Mm. Like, this is a long time to take making a movie. The film was shot, like, entirely with the doors closed on the soundstage and at night because Christensen and his director of photography felt that doing so would, like, give the whole film a darker atmosphere. <laughs> After the year of filming, then the film was in post-production editing from... October of 1921 through to its release in September of 1922. So basically a full year of post-production and editing, which again is like unheard of amount of time to take for a movie at this time. Mm -hmm. um, the film cost something like two to three million kronar, which meant that it was the most expensive Swedish film ever made at this point in time. Oh my god. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, um, I mean obviously there's been more expensive Swedish films since but uh, yeah, at the time it was it was absurdly expensive to make. Mm -hmm. Critical reaction to Hexen was extremely mixed. Mm. Uh, a lot of critics were just confused <laughs> by what it was, by its aesthetic, by its form, which sort of defied categorization at the time. I mean, we can look at Hexen and go oh, this is, this is a documentary, I'm getting an essay, a visual essay. Uh, critics at the time had no clue what this was supposed to be. 
In general, critics agreed that on a technical level, the film was an immense achievement. But there was a prevailing feeling that its content was so horrific that it should not be exhibited to the public hmm. for fear of promoting occultism. <laughs> I wonder if these reactions are also what lends Haxon into the horror movie genre on mm -hmm. all these lists and everything. Mm -hmm. I just find it so ironic that a movie that's supposed to be saying, oh yeah, back in the past we were afraid of people being witches, but we're, we're past that now. We're in the civilized modern day times. And the reaction to the film was, oh, this is going to make people go out and be witches. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, you see that today. Oh, yeah, for sure. LGBTQ yeah. content. But like, yeah, or even just, you know, crazy stuff like, like that, oh, yeah, Harry Potter was going to make us all go out and join the Church of Satan <laughs> or whatever. So in the U.S., mm. the film's English version, which was called The Witches, was banned for what was at the time considered graphic scenes of torture, nudity, and sexual perversion. Uh, so it was just, just too much for American audiences. Mm -hmm. I remember when we first watched this, I was surprised by the amount of nudity mm -hmm. in this. Yep. Europe's Wait. an interesting place. Yeah. So this, this banning of the film uh, resulted in rare 16mm copies kind of becoming cult objects among surrealists who <laughs> appreciated the film for its subversive elements. This counterculture cult film status resulted in a cut-down version of the movie finally seeing an official U.S. release in 1968 under the title Witchcraft Through the Ages, mm. uh, with a jazz score and <laughs> um, narration by William S. Burroughs. Oh. It wasn't until uh, 2001, when the film was restored by the Criterion Collection, that Christensen's original version of the film was widely available again. We own it from the Criterion Collection, but how can people watch along with us? You know, it's a public domain film again. Um, the Criterion Collection, I, uh, you know, that edition I would certainly recommend people pick up if they can, if they have the money for it. Uh, it includes both the original Hexen and the Witchcraft Through the Ages version with the <laughs> William S. Burroughs narration. Because it's a public domain film, there's a lot of uploads of it to YouTube. It's on the Internet Archive, a lot of different places like that. Um, the trick with finding... This film online is finding a version that has good video quality, but also English subtitles if you don't speak Swedish. Because I noticed that most uploads that were in good quality neglected to include the subtitles, and most uploads that had the subtitles were in garbage video quality. That being said, I did find a pretty good upload to YouTube uh, that I've added to the Scream Scene playlist. Cool. But uh, yeah, just reiterating what I've sort of said in previous episodes, my firmest recommendation for folks, if they really enjoy Hexen, is to, uh, you know, plunk down the dough and get that Criterion DVD to support, you know, the restoration of the film. Yeah. Folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back talking about Hexen. All right. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back. 
we just finished watching Hexen from 1922 by Benjamin Christensen. Is this your second time seeing this movie? Yeah, I'll say two and a half. Okay. Because, uh, like, my second time seeing it the whole way through, but there was that one night where you were watching it with a friend and I came home halfway through. Gotcha. Yeah, two and a half times. All right, so that would make it three for me. Cool. Yeah. Having the background of here's how the genre has been developing thus far, our previous discussions and such, uh, has your opinion changed on the movie itself? It's a really good film, mm-hmm. and I, I think I, you know, it's it's got a lot going on. It's very in-depth, and it's very um, intellectual, you know, and it's presented so well that I think it is a film that really benefits from repeat viewings as you can kind of take in more things and latch on to more things and absorb things more fully. But I wouldn't say that my opinion has changed. It's still the same movie that I've seen before. Yeah. And I don't think I've, I've really recontextualized it all that much. It, it's, it still remains what it, what it is. The thing that I think I always forget about this film is how funny it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really got a strong sense of humor that's that's mostly based around kind of mocking the superstitious ideas of the past, taking a lot of the bite out of these occult forces by making them vaguely ridiculous. <laughs> Do you think the black comedy phrase could go with this movie? Maybe. Not quite as spiteful as black comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of churning of butter. Yeah, certainly that, that famous repeated image of, of devils churning butter very vigorously yeah. um, gets a laugh every time. And, and there's a lot of others, you know, the, the devil flicking his tongue in and out all the time and, and just some of the cuts and some of the moments. It's, it's, it's got a, a strong sense of derisive humor in it. Even in the title cards, the humor in the title cards, it all really comes out in the last chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. Well, and, and at a certain point, the humor morphs into a kind of wry or bitter you know, just such a dissatisfaction with a certain element of the world that you see, you see that in humor a lot. And it really comes out with, like, when he's bringing in the comparisons from the medieval days to his contemporary times. Yeah, there's and that. And how nothing's really changed, except we just aren't burning people at the stake. Yeah. Let's go over the content quickly. Oh, right. Um, I forgot. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not a plot summary in the normal sense, but... Um, just a, a brief overview of the what this movie is like. Mm-hmm. So Hexen is divided into seven chapters, and the initial one is is basically a slideshow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slideshow of images from art, from medieval art, from Renaissance art, from ancient art, classical, uh, as well as sort of dioramas and models. One of the remarkable things about this film is that the director addresses the audience directly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the film's title cards are in first person, directly addressing the audience as if you were at a lecture. Yeah, even with like the pointy stick identifying what parts of the diagram he's describing in the title cards. Yeah, exactly. And right away, Hexen establishes a key through line in the film, which is a, a complete and utter derisiveness to the beliefs of medieval and ancient cultures. The film basically straight up says, we're going to be talking about witches. Uh, Witches are a belief of the past. In the past, people were stupid. And here's what they (laughs) believed. I mean, it doesn't really use that kind of language. He begins the film by telling you how medieval Europeans 
thought of the world, the, the way that they thought the world was constructed, how they thought the world worked uh, in terms of how the universe was constructed. And he doesn't really need to do that to explain what witches are. But he does it to set the context of if they believe this, then it all trickles down exactly. into witches and devils. Exactly. You know, he doesn't need to tell you this is the foundation of the medieval worldview, but he does it so that you know that, like, this is how ignorant of the world around them these people were, and therefore why they could believe in these things. He also goes into, you know, then what is a witch, what do witches do, and shows a lot of imagery from medieval tapestries and woodcuts and so on of uh, witches' sabbaths and witches' um, rituals. rituals, and also shows, you know, what is Satan, what are devils, uh, what do they do, what's hell like, uh, and a lot of images of those. And it's, it's important to kind of remember those paintings and woodcuts and etchings that he shows at the start. Yeah, uh, in all of the dramatizations with actors, <laughs> some very explicitly uh, call back to those original mm -hmm. illustrations. Mm -hmm. In the next chapter, Hexen moves into what is its main mode, which are kind of, you know, to use a modern documentary term, dramatic reenactments mm -hmm. of the past. Um, they're not necessarily, though, specific events. You know, Christensen isn't saying, these are real people who really lived, here's what's happened. He's basically showing you uh, examples. Yeah. He's, he's saying, we know from the past, this is how people acted, and this is the kind of things that happened. So let's imagine what that would have been like. And we go now to medieval times with a, a typical, <laughs> you know, scene. Uh, and chapter two shows us a variety of activities that could be seen as witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So he shows us, um, you know, old women getting together and, you know, swapping recipes for potions and magics. But he also shows us guys who are, like, trying to do autopsies on cadavers to learn science. And he also shows us just, like, misogynist jerks who trip over old women in the street and shows us how, like, everyone's labeled a witch. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're doing science, you're a witch. If you're doing herbalism and folkloric... Healing. Healing and, and kind of traditional medicine, we'll call it. You know, if you're doing that, or if you're just out to get someone, you can call all those people witches. Yeah. Because the society is so suspicious and so superstitious um, that you can get away with that. In Chapter 3, he moves on to explaining the Inquisition. And, you know, that the, the, the Catholic Church had these representatives who went out and sought to get rid of witches in, in towns and places. And I love the phrase that that's like on a title card near the end, that where whatever town that they happened to travel to, it was fine. They showed up and suddenly there were tons of witches. Yeah. Uh, and they just needed to be burned at the stake. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if your job is to get rid of witches, you probably want to find some witches if you want to keep your job, right? Yeah. So if there's something that Christensen has a more derisive attitude towards than just in general medieval ignorance, it's specifically the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, the priesthood does not come out of this movie looking very good. Christensen goes out of his way to say, you know, these guys are dicks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the key things that the movie shows is the kind of no-win scenario of being accused of being a witch. You know, you are, you are assumed guilty from the moment you're accused, 
And there's no way out. You either confess to being a witch and they burn you at the stake, or they just torture you and trick you and manipulate you until you confess and are burned at the stake. Yeah. I always get a laugh out of the character, Maria the Weaver. Mm -hmm. She's accused, she goes through all this, and she starts accusing her accusers of Mm -hmm. witchcraft uh, in kind of a, I'll take them down with me. Yeah, it's like the only way you could win was by kind of just taking down people with you. Um, I love also how this movie feels so modern at times. Mm both in how complex it likes to go with how there's like a no-one scenario as a woman in this mm-hmm. society, yeah. but it also feels very modern in uh, some of the techniques that mm-hmm. they use. There's one part where uh, I think it's when the priest is uh, getting whipped to keep his mind pure or mm-hmm. pious, and that shot, which is very kind of like a standard play shot, is overlaid with, like, a close-up of his face reacting to each hit. Yes. Things like that feel very ahead of its time. The film has a very effective editing style Mm. designed to, you know, let you follow along the arguments that the film is making and and the, the points that the film is making the same way that, you know, you would use words in an essay to make an, a reader follow along your points. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very effectively made film. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, I think, more or less, are taken up with Hexen's largest section, which is the dramatization of a witch hunt from beginning to end. This is kind of the most narrative mm-hmm. section of the film, and the, the fast version is that this regular old guy, Jesper the Printer, is like dying of illness and nobody knows what's to do because it's 1488 and doctors are stupid uh and the family's got a doctor in there and um the wife is just like oh well it has to be witchcraft because there's no way you could get sick this fast and it not be witchcraft doctor can you check for witchcraft wife being played by sister edith from phantom carriage yes here to mess up everyone's lives (laughs) yet again including her own yeah so the doc and this i found was really interesting and it's a great point that the movie makes The doc checks for witchcraft by boiling some lead, swishing it around in a cup, throwing it in some water so that it cools, pulling the cooled lead out, and then reading it using divination to determine if there's magic. So in other words, the doctor uses magic to see if there's been any magic done. So why is his magic good and a witch's magic bad? Well, because he's, you know, a doctor. So he's got authority in that society that's been approved, whereas, you know, a witch does not. So to the stake with ye. And not to just keep hammering the listeners over the head, but his position's accepted because he's a guy doing medicine, not Mm. a woman. Yeah, and I mean, his medicine's just as much bullshit as anyone else's because no one knows what they're doing. But yeah, he's got that societal approval and cachet. And that's a sort of a point the movie likes to make over and over again, is just how arbitrary the medieval conception of who's a witch and who's not is. It's not any one thing. It's a lot of different things. So yeah, so the doctor says, like, it's definitely a witch. 
So they have to, you know, find who this witch is. And um, a beggar woman has been let into the house at around this time to, you know, partake of some free food. And they decide that, oh yeah, Maria the Weaver, who's this old, decrepit beggar woman, you're the witch. Uh, so she gets taken off by the Inquisition and tortured. And as you were saying earlier, Sarah, the climax of her confession under physical torture is, you know, she puts everybody else in for being a witch, too. She puts in characters we've seen earlier in the movie doing more or less witchcraft, but she also puts in her accusers. She puts in random people like, oh, yeah, this person who kicked me in the street last week and <laughs> this other person I don't like. Like, anyone she doesn't like, she puts in for. And the really the most memorable sequence in this bit is when she confesses what she does as a witch, we go into this kind of fantasy sequence where Christensen dramatizes a witch's Sabbath for us. That, as we said earlier, calls back to all of those medieval imageries. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of, these are the scenes that, you know, you were saying in the introduction, like if you took them in out of context and just saw them, this is the stuff that looks like a horror movie. I think that's why, like you're saying, it's taken as a horror film and often why it's taken out of context, out of, for lack of a better word, the bookends of the argument. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, you know, makes this sequence kind of so unique to me and so effective for one thing, the special effects are just really good. Mm -hmm. um, Christensen's using every method he can to get what he needs to get on the screen. There's animation, and there's double exposure, and there's miniatures, and there's... Stop motion. Stop motion. There's um, a lot of makeup, a lot of prosthetics, a lot of masks, full body suits. There's um, multiple layering mm -hmm. as well of film on, on film on film. Mm -hmm. uh, like when the witches are flying around. Whenever I see double exposure, it's always like kind of a two layer thing. Yeah. This had so many other layers to it. Yeah, that's very true. It's a lot of impressive use of technique. And I think one of the things that makes the imagery so memorable is that he doesn't try to modernize his conception of any of it. And this kind of goes true for the whole movie. Like the people in this movie look like medieval people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people in this movie who are old and poor look old and poor. And there's no attempt to try and kind of glamorize anything. And when the witch's Sabbath sequence happens, like, it looks exactly like these medieval art depictions of it. You know, as goofy as <laughs> the demons and devils look in those old images, he just makes them look like that. He's not out to make a modern audience, you know, afraid of something. It's out to say this is what medieval people believed in, so it just shows you... What wh that was. What that was, right. And Satan might be, like, the best character in this movie. Played by the director. Played by the director himself. There's a unique thing in this movie, I think, where the only time any of these characters in these narrative sequences seem happy at all is when they've, like, given in to Satan. <laughs> um, so we get this Witch's Sabbath sequence wherein Maria throws everyone under the bus. And the film makes the point of saying that, you know, this is what happened. You know, you arrested one witch, and next thing you know, you had ten witches. And Anna the printer finds her whole family rounded up and taken to be witches. And she goes to kind of protest this... And that means that she must be a witch, too. And it doesn't help that one of the priests in the Inquisition has a crush on her, which means, like, she definitely must be a witch. Mm -hmm. And again, Christensen makes it clear that, like, the priesthood is full of assholes because, like, they try their best to do all the torture stuff and none of it works, so they finally have to, like, trick her yeah. 
into saying she's a witch, and it's it's just really driven home that like if you are in this society and you are unlucky enough to be accused of witchhood, like that's just the end. There's no way out at that point. You know, the film has a great title card where it says, um, "You were at risk of being called a witch if you were old and poor and ugly." But being young and pretty was no guarantee of safety either. So after this sequence of showing this whole event, and and this is where that bit came in that you were talking about of the judges leaving and it's saying, you know, now they're off to ruin the next town. Christensen stops us in chapter 6 to say some of them may very well have been true because people and uh, women have always engaged in little bits of, you know, old wives' tales type remedies and and things that you would do to ward off things and, and do things. But in modern times, we don't burn people for that shit. And and that's what they were doing. And he, he shows us all the torture implements, mm-hmm. like, one at a time to say, like, look, like, you would confess to anything if you were being tortured like this. That's the part of the film for me that it gets, like, really heavy. Yeah. Everything leading up to that, there's a separation between... That that I feel, anyways, between myself and what happened mm-hmm. because of the narrative that's going on. Um, I think because of how, to be blunt, like how kind of ridiculously funny some of the costumes are and like they're really well made and really well done, um, but they, they do at times look comical and so... And I think that's on purpose. I think he's yeah. trying to get across the idea that like this shit is ridiculous. Yeah, and so that helps me distance myself from like the realities of that society, and then when they start going over the torture devices, and they they don't demonstrate like how they worked, but they use illustrations to show it. They uh, get real close, like they'll 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 set it all up so that you can see how it works, and then like you know some guy will raise a hammer, and then they just won't show it coming down. Yeah, they do show using um, the thumb pincher, thumb screw, thumb screw, because the. <laughs> There's a title card that says, like, the actress insisted just to see what it was like, and, like, she barely lasts, like, ten seconds, Mm -hmm. so... But, yeah, that's the part that gets really tough, and then because that chapter transitions into the chapter that's, like, comparing how it was then to how it is in his contemporary time, and how it's still not any better. Sure, we don't burn people at the stake, but we put them in mental institutions. And I really appreciate that he has one title card that comes up with, like, you know, we put poor and old and possibly mentally ill women into these institutions, or if they're wealthy, into health clinics. Uh I always appreciate when filmmakers and writers and people writing about social things like this, uh, when they take the time to acknowledge that people had it very differently depending on your class, your race, your gender. Uh I think there's like a a moment in the film where that shift happens between kind of the goofy and the more serious, or at least it signals a shift. It's not maybe a hundred percent, but it signals a shift. And that's, you know, at the very end of the narrative sequence, when the judges are all leaving, a title card comes up and says, over the course of this many centuries, the church executed 8 million women, men, and children under the suspicion of witchcraft. Yeah, and before the break I had said 4 million people uh, estimated to have died. That's the solid number I could find online, but I'm willing to go with Christensen's number here of 8 million because he would have done all the research and had the bibliography and everything to hold up that statistic. Mm -hmm. After showing all the torture implements, the next section of the film delves into, again, 
additional explanations for witchcraft. And I think this is one of the more interesting things the film does, you know, is it, it shows all these various things that witchcraft was in medieval society. If you were doing science, you're a witch. If you're doing traditional medicine, you're a witch. If you're old and poor, you're a witch. If you're unlucky enough to get a priest erect, you're a witch. If mm -hmm. you're, you know, someone nobody liked, you're a witch. And, you know, then it comes into this interesting place where he starts talking about these instances of nuns in convents going yeah. crazy and saying the devils made them do all these things and people you know acting strangely just in general people acting strangely they're a witch and that's sort of how he transitions into talking about contemporary society for him and specifically the contemporary state of women in the early 20s, uh, specifically a post-World War I mm -hmm. kind of thing, where the, the comparison he starts to draw is to say, you know, we have all these, these accounts of medieval women saying that the devils made them do all these crazy things, and so we burned them as witches. How much different is that from hysterical women today? And, and it is worth saying that in 1922, hysteria was basically just the catch-all term for mental illness. Any mental illness fell under the term hysteria. And it was incredibly gendered too, right? I don't recall ever hearing of men uh, diagnosed with hysteria. I, I don't know if it's like 100% a thing that never happened, but definitely it was a gendered thing. It was probably, you know, cases of men going mad and being put in institutions and stuff. But And I think probably men being diagnosed as hysterical. But the term certainly became gendered because it was so overwhelmingly used to describe women. I would also bet that you would have to be pretty intensely mentally ill as a man to be institutionalized in this time period. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you'd probably just need to be kind of an annoyance as a woman to be institutionalized. Yeah. There's pictures around the internet of documentation from the 20s of how to identify uh, hysteria, and it's anything from, like, having too strong of an opinion on politics to being horny. Mm -hmm. Christensen's really good at, you know, empathizing with these women who suffer from what we would probably now describe as anxiety disorders. What's the title card? It says something like, you know, is not the woman with hysteria just as much a mystery to us today? His society has no idea how to treat these women. The best they've got is to, yeah, throw them in mental institutions or cl health clinics. It's only mildly better mm -hmm. than throwing them in a convent. Yeah, the last very powerful visual metaphor that he does is it goes from a, a scene at a health clinic where a woman's going into the shower and she's like, oh, it's too hot, can you turn it down? She goes in and then that fades into uh, seeing a, a burning pyre. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the last shot of the film. It's also powerful when you realize that that last shot of the film is the only time we see a pyre. Yeah. It's, it's talked about the whole movie that this is, you know, how you end up as a witch is you get burned at the stake, mm -hmm. but we don't see it until the last shot. He substitutes it with, like, illustrations, mm -hmm. and I think that allows him to get the point across of what they're describing, but the emotional punch still comes at the end. Yeah. The thing that I appreciate, too, is, you know, Christensen isn't engaging in hyperbole. He's not trying to say that being institutionalized or being in a mental health clinic is as bad as being tortured and burned at the stake. He's not mm -hmm. saying that. What he's m more trying to get across, though, is that society still hasn't really put any effort into solving the plight of these women. Yeah. And the implicit connection, you know, between 
the hysterical woman of the early 20th century who suffered from all these anxiety disorders and, you know, the women of medieval times. And, you know, and he draws explicit connections from case to case of here's a thing witches were accused of doing, here's a thing that modern women still do. And, you know, it's, it comes from oppression. You know, what causes someone to be so anxious about their life day in, day out that they will have these breakdowns? It's, you know, being in fear of the society around you and how it's treating you day in, day out, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the, the connection that he draws and, and the connection that you can still see is that the reason we haven't been able to help solve the problem of these women is because we, we don't really treat women any much better in our society. I think that's also why this film feels more modern than what it is. Like, if we saw an argument like that in a film that came out this year... Mm-hmm we would be like, wow, like, talking about that, that's so great. Like, when Mad Max Fury Road came out, <laughs> We Are Not Things, mm-hmm. um, and how much of a rallying cry that was, I feel like this would have had that same kind of rallying cry behind it at the time. What's so interesting to me, you know, speaking of how modern this film feels, Christensen doesn't just have a, a derisiveness for old superstitions. He He almost just can't fathom them like he just he spends a lot of the movie almost saying like can you believe that anybody thought this yeah Uh, and there's a point where you know he points out that like in 1922 there are still like people who believe in the devil and satan and witches and god and magic and occultism and tarot and sorcery and things and you know you can see that his reaction to this is like can you believe that like in this modern year in this progressive rational time that there are still people who are you know this backward and i'm sitting here in 2017 knowing about you know pentecostal churches and the new evangelical movement of the southern united states and the degree to which dangerous and hostile religious fanaticism still impacts and oppresses and really messes up the lives of a lot of people even today. A hundred years later. Yeah. Practically. Yeah, exactly. I still really like this film even after this viewing. I still stand by my decision to, my my argument of having us talk about it and review it, but I also still stand by the decision of not ranking it with the other films. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why this film has remained so memorable over the years, I mean, we admire it for what it's trying to say. Mm -hmm. But I think what's made it memorable over the years is its imagery. Definitely. Um, And there's something about the unique blend that goes on in this film between the fact that Christensen's just straight up using the medieval imagery, blending that with kind of the almost natural creepiness that you get from anyone (laughs) doing anything in, you know, the early 20th century, and then blending that with this kind of, you know, very dark lighting style that he's got, where everything's kind of lit from maybe one source, so there's heavy shadows. very natural lighting. Very naturalistic lighting that kind of renders everything in shadow a lot of the time, that just renders so many of the images uh, weirdly creepy. There's, There's this one about women who confessed under torture that they turned into cats and were let into the church by demons in the shape of animals uh, where they, like, peed on the altar and then left. 
And there's just a shot of these, like, two demons who are basically just two guys in big giant animal suits by these church doors letting in women who are just, like, have big cat heads on as they walk through. And, like, it should be comical, but there's something about, like, the way that it's lit and the proportions of the, like, animal suits that everyone's wearing. And the just, way they move. And the way they move that just renders it all very creepy. Definitely. I think that's how it really works throughout all of those sequences. It has that turn-of-the-century creep factor going for it. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, a, a factor that makes this film work so well is the quality of the performances, especially from the leading women who act mm -hmm. in this film. They're so... Because yeah, this cast would be huge. Like, I would say that, like, there's no lead protagonist at all. The closest would be Maria the Weaver. Uh, I would say also Anna, the printer's wife. Yeah, um, that's true. But, yeah, there, he's smart enough to you reuse a lot of characters. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a set of actors who play the Inquisition priests, and while they are present in that one narrative, if he needs any other scenes with Inquisition priests, he just uses those same three guys. But, you know, there's there's some very old women who are in this film whose performances are very, very good. The, the younger actresses are good. And they're all very naturalistic. You know, you can buy that these are people in these situations. Mm -hmm. um, the sequence where the Inquisition priests are torturing first Maria and then later Anna really reminds me of Passion of Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's the amount of, like, close-ups on faces with mm -hmm. tears. When was that released? When was that done? That's after this. Okay. Uh, by about five years, I want to say. What's interesting is, like, that's a French film, but its director, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer, was also Danish, like Benjamin Christensen. Um, and they're sort of considered Denmark's best silent film directors. So there's a really good chance that he would have seen this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good film. And I think it's definitely one worth seeing, for mm -hmm. sure. You know, if you've been listening along and you haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. It's, it's a very unique watch. If we aren't ranking it on the list uh, due to its, <laughs> its non-status as a horror film, yeah, um, due to its status as not belonging on the list, I will say that we'll at least, we will be putting it up on the website, on our page for the list, um, to show that we have covered it but we will simply be marking it as not applicable. Yeah, miscellaneous. <laughs> um, if you would like to check out that list, you can find it at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find the YouTube playlist, so you can watch along and uh, find Haxon and watch it. Uh, you can also submit appeals or requests through our ask box. Feel free to also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, you can also contact us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. At any of those places, it would be super cool to hear what you think of Hexen. If you think it is a horror movie, or if you think that there's other movies that we might have missed, I, I would love to hear uh, if we've missed something. Scream Scene comes out weekly on Wednesdays, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. In either of those locations, we would love to get uh, some ratings and reviews. Uh, reviews on iTunes are how podcasts are most easily found. Plus, it's also just really cool hearing from people who listen to us. For sure. Yeah. We, we are open to any and all feedback. Yeah. <laughs> what movie are we watching next week? So next week, we will be returning to Germany and the careers of Konrad Veit and Robert Wiener uh -huh. for the German expressionist horror film Orlok's Hand. Ah, uh, 
god, I love this one. We we watched this during that original stint of watching horror movies back in like October of 2015 and this was like an unexpected favorite of mine. It's it's going to be a real good episode and we hope you'll join us. Thanks so much for listening creatures of the night. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.